When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Listeners, as the world burns around us, let us reflect on the fact that we have found a hobby that brings us happiness. People take their whole lives to search for such a thing, and we need to be grateful in the fact that we find such joy and happiness in this hobby of board gaming. Praise be board games. The unexamined life is not worth living, and to a certain extent, the examined life is to determine what makes you happy, and board gamers, generally speaking, are pretty good at focusing on that. That's a good point, Walker. It's inspirational. Thank you. My name is Michael Walker, as you just said. I'm here with my good friend, Mark Bigney. We are so very wrong about games. It is a board gaming podcast where we talk about board games. This week, we are going to talk about the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. We're going to talk about the games we played this week, the news, and why it doesn't matter. And the topic of the week, which is, does the industry demand too much? It giveth, and yet it demandeth as well. So the Aurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, this week is Beyond the Sun. Walker, what are your ongoing thoughts about... You haven't played Beyond the Sun much since we reviewed it. I have on Board Game Arena. Just not in person with, with you on the physical, but it is on Board Game Arena. Great implementation. I'm not sure about the name, because Beyond the Sun, I don't think maybe the designers didn't understand how orbits work, because Beyond the Sun is us in, like, half a year. It just... (laughs) We You know, it's... it's, Yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I I, I understand. It's it's meant... Interstellar trap... Okay. All right. (laughs) So Beyond the Sun is this... it It was denoted as this giant tech tree game right and very much it is you you have this small little area majority thing going on the side with your space spacey pew pew ships and then you have this very interesting sort of tech sort of increase your different choices and actions on the main board and there's an advanced version where you get asynchronous powers with a way better draft system so you can sort of asymmetric powers asymmetric what do I keep saying? Asynchronous. Asynchronous. Well, yeah, you do pick them all at the same time at the beginning of the game. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, with the draft system where you get to sort of see the texts that are coming up and sort of plan ahead a little bit. Yeah, I'm disappointed that the draft system hasn't come out yet for the board game marine implementation. I understand why they haven't put out the special powers. I've played it in both online and physical version. And in fact, there are two games specifically this week that I will compare unfavorably to Beyond the Sun, because one of the things that I'm appreciating more and more about the Beyond the Sun, in addition to the, the tech tree, which is very, very well done, is the way it handles production. You always feel in Beyond the Sun that you're never wasting turns because you're short of resources. You have to plan, you have to save, but the way production works and the way the action works, you, if with, with a little bit of forward thought, you're able to maintain forward momentum in a reasonably satisfying way without everything being too cheap and easy. And I really appreciate that. Agreed. 
So it's Beyond the Sun, designed by Dennis K. Chen and Rio Grande Games. There is supposed to be an expansion coming out sometime, and I, for one, am very much looking forward to it. Now, on to the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, I got to try Legacy of Dragonhold. This is designed by Nikki Valens, Daniel Clark, Tim Falders, Annie Vander, Mir Mitsoda, and Greg Spidris. Put out by Fantasy Flight Games, and it's very much a pick-your-own-adventure-type game. I only did the first sort of module, sort of like an introduction, baby walkthrough of how the systems are going to work. You do a full character creation, which I think might be a barrier to, like... Uh, newer players, right? Say if it's like, if, if, say if you're trying to introduce a novel reader or someone say, oh, here's a great way to get into sort of the board game hobby. It's quite a front end loaded, you know, writing out your really? character. I, I didn't find it tedious, but I just thought, I thought for a second, it's like for someone who's never done role playing whatsoever, like for someone who's done role playing, huh. it'd be a, you know, two second write up of, of a character, but someone who has never done anything like that. I think it might be a little bit of a barrier. It's interesting you say that. That was definitely not my impression because character creation consists in picking a background and the the substance of it, the gaminess of it, is just get a certain number of skills. And for my part, all I did was I I spent a little bit of time thinking of a character concept and the rest of it flowed from that immediately. Now, maybe as you say, that's because I have a role-playing background, but the overarching impression that I get from Dragonhold as a system is that it is so rules-light as to merely be there to facilitate the storytelling. And in that sense, I think it does an excellent job. But anyway, I'm, I'm stealing your thunder, as it were. By all Not so much. And, and I did enjoy it. It did feel a little bit like, you know, the regular computer dialogue walkthrough where some of the choices I think you would have got to regardless of what you picked. They do have an interesting system where you're crossing off sort of letter combinations. And it'll ask you if you have certain things. You can see where you're going to bypass some of the story and, and get some bonuses. But like I said, it's just the introductory mission. I think they did a fantastic job. And I really like how the combat works and the fact that you do not have to take up the whole table. It is you can very much play it on a couch with your partner and and just sort of read the story to them. And you can do all the bookkeeping yourself if they're not like big into games and they can sort of get attached to one of the characters. And then you sort of, you know, front load a little bit more decision in their in their area and and get them right into it. And so you're playing a two-player? I am. Okay. I should stress, based on my past comments about Dragon Hall, that I'm only playing it one player. And the big difference between playing it solo and playing it multiplayer is you don't have to do any reading out loud. As a further consequence to saving the time, the narrative is all about me, and I don't have to worry about any sort of cognitive dissonance or sort of strange element of, well, one character wants to do something, they should, it's really appropriate for them based on either their relationship or their skill pattern, but the game says you can't activate, you know, three times in a row the same person, which is fine. I understand what it's there, but as I said, I, I, I appreciate Dragonhold more as the rule systems kind of fade away. And I'm very curious about how I would respond to it in multiplayer. I suspect not as positively as I do currently. But, but if you're reading to yourself, you don't get to do the voices. It's true. I don't enjoy doing the voices. The voices are fun. Or sometimes I make recourse to voices only because I find the writing so terrible. Some, that, that is also true. But uh, And but, we, we never – I just wanted to be clear. I want the listeners to know we would never in a narrative game ad-lib any lines whatsoever. Never. 
Never. Nor would we insert wry observations about how the story doesn't make any sense. But both of those things, I, sh- I should stress, I don't do with Legacy of Dragon Hole because I adore the storytelling. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, the writing is top-notch. The dialogue is organic. The story is focused and narrow in scope, which is what I love. My favorite Dragon Age is Dragon Age 2. Hashtag best Dragon Age. And I really appreciate how it. there's a sense of consequence to what's going on. And I've been dipping back into it myself. I talked about it again last week. And I'm just I, I'm just relishing it. And I'm dreading that I think I'm getting towards the end. And I'm just very disappointed because those people... I, I'll feel like those people aren't waiting for me anymore, <laughs> which is kind of sad. But I'm interested to see how much the stories branch. I am interested in actually finishing it and trying different ways and seeing if it really does flush out a whole different story. It is conceivable, having mentioned Bioware games in passing, it is conceivable that the story will branch more in terms of the way the viewer fleshes them out. I have conversations with people about Mass Effect 3, for example. They're like, oh, well, all the endings are the same. And then all it takes is a couple of questions, and it makes it clear that their inflection, their own headcanon, their own active participation as an audience, changes the inflection, the substance, the tenor, and the tone of almost all the things that happened, not even just at the end, but throughout a lot of the story, right? And it wouldn't surprise me if the substantive differences in two different playings of Legacy and Dragonhold would be based on that, because it took me very little time to get very attached to my character and to really start role-playing my character's background and viewpoint point, which again is not a function of systems, but a function of the quality of the storytelling. I felt like I had to make sure that the that the protagonist in the story was as fleshed out as all these people that they were interacting with. So again, a credit to the writing team on that score. Yeah, I did have to sort of backtrack a little bit because I had given backgrounds to the characters and then there was from from the person I was playing with, there were some questions as to why certain things were happening. <laughs> sure. And, and I sort of said, well, I, I gave them this whole backstory. Sure. So, so this is why we're going to do it this way. <laughs> reasonable, reasonable. And that is Legacy of Dragonhold by Fantasy Flight Games. And I will just issue a reminder that David Thompson and Nikki Valens are potentially interested in doing no, a solo design no, not together. not potentially, Mark. They promised. The, promise is a strong term, Walker. <laughs> I think that social media chatter could be described in your terms as pillow talk. Yes, very much so. But if a publisher is interested on something that will at least sell two copies based on the two hosts of this podcast, uh, you should reach out to David Thompson or Nikki Valens. We also got to play Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Scrawlers, Heroes of Undermountain once again. I was slightly concerned that my appreciation of this novelty was based purely on novelty. No, I genuinely appreciate this novelty. Having played again, I've now played six of the possible ten dungeons. One of them is actually relatively interesting. You don't suffer penalties for skipping rooms, and you're subject to a hard 90-second time limit. But it's a big, sprawling maze. All three of us, I should note... Uh, kind of fell for the obvious bait and just went through each room in sequence. But there's the possibility of just bypassing everything and skipping straight to the boss. I would be curious to see how that works out. Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Scrawlers is a real-time scribbling game. I, as as a child, was very much a fan of Connect the Dots. As a very young child, probably I was too old to appreciate Connect the Dots by the time I stopped doing it, but anyway. And this is the gamified version of Connect the Dots, and it's everything I wanted it to be. And I have such irrational enthusiasm for Dungeon Scrollers. I like how they injected the player interaction with those keys, right? You look on your map, and they have four different colored keys. And some of the locks need two different combinations, so you can sort of 
briefly look at the map and say, okay, if I go into the map this way, because in this particular one, they give you different entrances you go for. If I go in this one, I'll get these two keys, which will let me in this side of the room. And, but there's only one set of those, or sorry, depending on the number of players, there'll be a certain number of keys. There are not enough for everyone. Not enough for everyone. So you're racing through, you're trying to get them before the other players. I thought that was a great way to give a little bit of interaction. Yeah. It's a marvelous game. I highly recommend it. Dungeon Scrawlers, Heroes of Undermountain. The subtitle makes me hopeful that there might be more. We'll see. I got to play the Great Wall again, Mark. It's funny. It's one of these things where you see the Kickstarter and you went, ah, overblown production, all about, you know, the fluff and nothing there. And it gets fulfilled and people are talking about it. So you're like, oh, I'll never get to try this game. And then now I've played it more than I think almost any other game. I got to play a different copy. I got to play with the actual miniature version, which was odd because... It's supposedly it's the upgraded version, but that copy didn't have the upgraded resources. resources. Oh, so it was wooden resources and plastic guys as opposed to wooden guys and plastic resources. I suppose between the two of us, we have a completely comprehensive blinged out copy. It's true. And I love how it played out differently because I talked about this last week where I'm so lucky that I get to play in different groups and then games play out differently. And much like this, the Great Wall did. When we play the Great Wall, we sort of seed our workers out there, and then the actions sort of slowly activate as they fill up. In this game, they decided, no, this turn, we're getting wood. <laughs> this turn, we're getting stone. So we, we'd all just focus on one action and sure. get filled up on, on you know, this, you know, after everyone. There was goes. market collusion, in other exactly. words. Exactly. Yeah. Total market collusion. So it was so weird the way it was working out. The uh, changing the turn order never changed. It was three players, so we only had to complete two of the walls. But by the end of the game, we completed all three. It was well-liked by everyone. It's just got, it's so much going on. No, I shouldn't say so much going on. It makes it sound confusing. It's just so many different ways you can play it, I think, will make it interesting for all different types of play styles. Focused and yet open, I think, is a good way to characterize it. It's relatively focused in that it is not a sprawling point salad mess. And it is open in that the action selection from the cards, coupled with the worker placement, gives you a fair degree of flexibility about how the economy is going to shake out, as you say, in the Great Wall. And sometimes collusion is kind of necessary. There's the fact that a very, very essential space, namely the one that deploys soldiers, kind of by its mere existence, encourages collusion. Because if you go there by yourself, you're going to get shame tokens. We're not really sure thematically how this makes sense. It's like, I will go and defend the homeland alone. It's like, well, that's very embarrassing. You should feel shame for that. Okay, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, setting that well, aside. The, the other side of the die is is, is hilarious because the space right beside that is building the wall. And it is so much screwing everybody else. Oh, yeah. Because when it's in, great. when you collect resources, you're allowed to put some resources to the Great Wall as a donation and get some victory points, but the resources just sort of build up there. And whoever goes there and takes that action gets to use all of those goods. So it's very much a timing thing, making sure you're the first player. And I already, I think I already said how it was like Gugong, because we talked about Gugong earlier. And it's almost the exact same thing. It's like you're all about timing. Yes. It's the same Great Wall building. It's the same sort of mechanism going on as in Gugong, and I thought that was an interesting sort of... Well, for a game that's not really much about economy, it's a very interesting element of economy, knowing when to go and build, when the resources are available, people profiting from the donations, because it almost always makes sense. A single resource for two points is more or less a no-brainer. In most other instances, a resource is going to be worth one point max. And so that element of collusion, of coopetition, if you will, is just one of the many clever design flourishes in the Great Wall. And that is the Great Wall, Published by Awaken Realms.
and it's designed by Camille Chesla, Robert Plesevitz, and Lukasz Wodarczyk. We get to play Ariantis. Ariantis is by Leo Colavini and Cradio Creations put out last year. This is the republication of Carolus Magnus, a.k.a. Carlos Grande, a.k.a. Chucky Big Big, a.k.a. Chucky Mags, a.k.a. Karuli Maguni. The big Chuckster. Oh, yeah. He's big, all right. And Ariantis is very much a step backward in terms of theme. Now it's it's... Not that, well, okay. It depends on who you ask, like many things. I, for one, am kind of okay with the sort of frowny Euro great man of history version of Euro designs, uh, especially insofar as they don't paper over atrocities, and to the best of my understanding, the uh, dissolution of Charlemagne's empire in and of itself was not characterized by a great deal of atrocities. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but anyway... The Ariantis replace, replaces Charlemagne with this notion of uh, floating islands and a sort of very pastel-colored kids' book fantasy realm of frog princes and unicorns and gnomes and such. It seems to make much more sense to me. I didn't get to, I haven't got to play it, but the fact that in in Chucky Megs, like you're you're literally you're merging just, principalities because yeah. you you're but they, you're, they, you're they, a satrap. They, now they can, actually like move together. Well, it's a little okay. It's a little bit of an abstraction in that case, but anyway. Setting all that aside, I, I will comment that that element, once you start controlling adjacent regions, they start out all in a disconnected ring, and as you start controlling adjacent regions, they merge. Physically, this is such a minor element, but physically it happens so much better in Chucky Mags because there were these arbitrary and abstract collection of hexes, and so you'd get these very interesting land masses that would just come together. In Ariantis, they're just these very large hexes, and they're very large hexes with a lot of air around the edges of these floating islands. And as a consequence, once you've got three or four in the same grouping, you're not really sure where you're supposed to put the cubes. And it actually becomes a little bit more difficult to parse immediately what the cubes are in a three or four area. This is a minor thing, but visually it bothered me a great deal. Now, component-wise, there have been a number of very, very important forward steps in terms of usability. You now have these recessed player boards, with a space for your hand, a space for how much influence you have in the various factions, and a space for all your towers. At a glance, it is much easier to see what someone's sitting on, how much influence you need to be in order to control the various factions, because like every Leo Colavini game, this is fundamentally a stock game. It's what Leo Colavini does. He designs abstracted stock games, and the area majority on the boards is influenced by how much influence you have in the various factions. So that's a step forward. And for that reason alone, I think Ariantis is going to be the go-to version. I'm going to miss... The frowny, gray, brown, yellowness of Karuni Maguli, but nonetheless, it's more usable as a con- I just got to live with the, the, the islands being somewhat less visually easily parsed. I heard just starts out with the, the addition of what we usually put on for Chucky Mags is standard in the game. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly. In Carlos Grande, nearly every player dispensed with the dice that would replenish your hand. And instead of had a drafting system whereby you draft a package of cubes, which was influenced by turn order as well, making the turn order yet more meaningful. And in Ariantis, this is standard. It's a slight variation. It's very, very, very subtly different from the common variant, but it's got components for it and it, it, it's default in box. And indeed, you do not have any dice to use the older version, but there would be no reason to want to use the older version. And there's an additional gameplay module, namely special powers that can be activated infrequently. Given that Ariantis is a game of making tactical moves to sway influence over areas, this seems like a natural fit especially since the powers seem to be relatively minor most of the time. But 
it can really help uh, dislodge some stalemates because it is occasionally the case that someone can get a stronghold that's very, very difficult to dislodge. If you've been saving up, using the special powers might help you. Now, I've only one play in. I've only tried uh, a handful of the special powers. They seemed okay, but it is possible that it will disrupt some of the brilliance because at the end of the day, it's not my favorite Euro in the world, and Leo Colovini is my favorite designer, but Carolus Magnus really, really was incredibly clever in terms of being able to take command of tactical opportunities while kind of caring a little bit about a broader strategic horizon. Yeah, just the turn order gameplay part of it is just amazing. Absolutely. We've uh, we've talked a lot about Carolus Magnus over the years, and I was very, very curious to check out Ariantis. As I say, I don't like the theme as much, but overall it is a more usable package, and it is currently in print. That's to say, and more available. Yes, and more available. So I had, a, I had a great time with Ariantis. Again, super tactical. It's one of those games that I enjoy a great deal, despite being incredibly inept at. And it's always nice to have those reminders that you don't like games just because you think you're good at them. <laughs> I mentioned that about Rift Force as well. I don't think I've won a single game of Rift Force. I don't think I've won a single game of Carolus Magnus. Happy oh, to play it. Much like Regicide, right? You haven't won that yet either. You shut I got your lying mouth. Sorry, there was that one time. Oh, jeez. You, you know, you and the rest of the internet... Between you, the patrons, everyone on Twitter, random people have never heard my name showing up to troll me on Twitter. They don't need the encouragement, Walker. Sorry, sorry. Mark, we got to play a game called Northgard Uncharted Lands. Now, this is based off of a Vidja game. Have you played the Vidja game? I have not. It was just off of a free weekend. I should have given it a whirl, but I did not. I Because I enjoyed the game so much, I think I might actually give it a try. They are both published by Shiro Games. The board game is designed by Adrian Denou, and it's very much standard fare. And I think it is because it is based off a video game, because more than likely they've pulled in a bunch of their video game players in order to try maybe their first board game. And I think it is a very smart move to keep it, you know, standard fare. Like I said, it's very much a minor deck building type game. You're playing cards to move your troops around the map, gather resources, and at the end of the round, you're... I guess, yeah, I don't want to even say drafting, but there are one card per player available and whoever passes first gets to choose one of their cards and now it's in your deck. And they also have an interesting mechanism where you're spending runes to sort of cycle through your deck and get rid of cards and add clan cards. And there's a bunch of uh, uh, expansions already because it's a Kickstarter. So, of course, there's tons of expansions. I got to play it twice. I got to play just the standard game and we played it a second time where we added the creatures. And so when you flip up certain map sections, which is another very, I don't want to say super interesting, but for how standard the game was, uh, exploring, flipping up map sections, trying to manipulate the map to your advantage and, and give you better area control or more points. I thought that was pretty interesting. I think you're bearing the lead, actually. Northgard is primarily about the tile laying. In terms of the vitric conditions, in terms of actually pursuing your interests, ignoring the tile laying is very much to your peril. If you play it, if you look at it and say, okay, well, there are troops on this map, it, it says it's trying to be a 4X game. Eh, I mean, yeah, the deck building is kind of interesting. I like the deck manipulation. It's it's subtle. It's not It's not as aggressive as you would find in a pure deck builder. But I do appreciate how that works. I thought that was pretty clever. I wish it had been married to a more interesting game. Because the combat is utterly degenerate. It is classic A fights B and C wins problem. You can, in a classic degeneracy for, common to 4X games, build off the map so you're just safe in your own little corner. Conflict is a mistake. It's asking for trouble. And it is easy to protect your rear lands. And so ultimately what you're left with is a situation where if through 
lucky slash good early plays, you're able to set up a bunch of territory that's good for you and command some choke points, well then, the game just plays itself. Well, that played out slightly differently in the second game because a little, a couple more abilities, what which let you uh, muster guys anywhere on the map came up, and so there was people coming in from behind, and there was, and both times we only play, uh, I only played it three player, so that ABC thing literally means it's going to play out that way. Where I think maybe with four or five, it might be slightly different. Yeah, A and B fighting C and D win. Well, that that could be. I'm not sure. Maybe <laughs> may, we might be a little more reserved and maybe not attack you know, with all of your troops, you know, just do smaller skirmishes right away as opposed to the giant buildup that we always end up, you know. Well, but the game itself encourages the giant buildup because when you fight, you throw a die and it is possible to inflict as many as two casualties with this die. If you run out of troops, if they're all dead, you just lose flat out. And it's very hard to get troops back, back on the map. Usually it's an entire card action, which is, say, a fourth of your action over the course of the entire round, of which there are only seven. And so the threat of, of losses is so prevalent. And if both sides suffer losses in one way or another, in a game that's relatively light on these actions, eh, suddenly Northgard is starting to look a little bit more like Carcassonne with delusions of grandeur than an actual light 4X game. It's true. I, I, I definitely don't think pure gamers are going to enjoy it because even with the creatures expansions there were some issues where because it's just luck of that tile draw right you flip it up and there happens to be a creature's den on it and it seemed to be affecting the one side of the map only ah. and so the creatures would come into his board space and and they stop you from collecting any resources in those spaces until you kill off the monster that's not good not good at all oh my goodness that is Northgard, Uncharted Lands. There's still two more modules to try out. There's one where you get uh, a clan leader, and they do all sorts of crazy, interesting things. And then, like, improved death creatures that will, that will I'm sure, be uh, much more powerful. Yeah, I saw the leader abilities. They didn't seem particularly consequential. And uh, doubling down on this random thorn in your side that might get pulled as a consequence of your tile draw doesn't sound ideal. This being said, the, the components are ridiculously well done and they're fine the layout of the the like the insert you know one to you know the sure. pass out the players the player boards all that stuff looks good. i feel like now we're damning with faint praise well i, I just want to make sure someone listening to it just to find out about this game that you know is is into just the video game i think they will enjoy it it's possible i have no inclination to go back to Northgard. i didn't enjoy the Everything that was layered on top of the tiling seemed like a distraction and didn't really fit. Had there been points for combat, had there been some sort of incentive to mix things up, had there been possibly even just the, incre- the increase of powers that let you muster with greater flexibility might have helped address things, but then you still have to engage in the fighting, which is so risky and time-consuming and benefits everyone but you and the person you're fighting. I'm not sure. Anyway, that was Northgard, Uncharted Lands by Adrian Dinu. Played another game of Space Station Phoenix. This is by Gabriel J. Cohn and Rio Grande Games. Another sci-fi Euro management game. Kind of sort of worker placement, but not really. Very much in the same way that Beyond the Sun is kind of sort of worker placement, but not really. What did you think of Space Station Phoenix in person, Walker? I did. I, I like it. It really, uh, I like how Board Game Arena lets you cycle all those gems that you're bringing back and forth. It's, it's very <laughs> yeah. much, as you say, a cube pusher. Put all the cubes on, take all the cubes off, put them all back on again. Sure. You are exchanging those those crystals 
quite a lot. Normally, I reserve the term cube pusher for a game like Kalos or like Century Spice Road or even like Citadel Confluence, where you're spending your entire time turning one kind of cube into other kinds of cubes. Uh, but yes, you do spend a lot of time in Space Station Phoenix moving the money around. But the concept is very interesting. Like you said, you, you're showing up, you have this giant sort of space station, and now you want to or a bunch of little ships, and now you want to build it into a space station. So you start destroying the ships, which are your actions, and you're building up your space station. And you can see all of the different space station modules, I guess, that are available. And you can sort of plan your path of how you're going to get victory points. So for some reason, it really gives me a feel of cryo. And I think it's more like because there's not much of a buildup, you're sort of going through the same actions over and over again. But it's still semi-interesting hmm. i don't know why i don't know why maybe it's just the color palette or what it is but it just gives me that same sort of feel i was to be frank rather deflated on pa- playing space stations phoenix for the second time so i played it the first time and i thought well this is an interesting kind of cycle of exploiting your ships destroying your ships building space station and i wondered how much the different cores and the different modules would vary up the game and I was kind of curious about whether the draft of new uh, space uh, uh, spaceships themselves would vary the game. As it happens, there's precious little variety in the spaceships. That's okay. And the variety in the modules, although considerable, didn't make me feel like I was in any way changing the core gameplay loop. Which is to say, a, a somewhat laborious process of spending all your crystals and then unlike Beyond the Sun, having to spend a full turn to get my resources back, which felt like a waste of time, you know? I very much appreciated the, the the contrast because it's very much the kind of thing where if you're taking income, you're losing. That's It's a waste turn most of the time. There are some exceptions, I'll grant you, and I'm sure if you're an expert in Space Station Phoenix, you can find ways that it's it you can really exploit it well. But you're not really going to get a lot of the metal or the other resources you need when taking... Uh, income actions in most configurations. And as I say, the difference in terms of the space station modules, I didn't feel like it varied the formula up a much. So, so it felt exactly like my first play, only just again. And so I, I was very disappointed by that fact. And the dice rolling thing was, seems so weird. And so it is a place str- with, with the rest of the game. Yes, yes. See, I, I don't know why it felt it slowed the game down, but it just felt as though it oh, slowed the game Oh, it absolutely slows the game down because you pick up these dice and you decide which dice you want to keep and it's not really much of a dice game. In some cases, your your power made it much, much worse because you could re-roll. That was unsurprisingly delayed things somewhat. But when you consider how little player interaction there is in Space Station Phoenix, we could have just kept kept going on in a merry way while you were sorting out dice. True. It might have even gotten back to you again by the time we were fi- before you were finished, but who knows. Yeah, I'll play it again, um, but I, w- I was hopeful it was going to feel more different, and it didn't. It felt It felt pretty much exactly the same, and that disappointed me a great deal. Space Station Phoenix. Speaking of dice, we got to play Llama Dice. Sorry, Don't Llama Dice, we found out. Yeah, the English rulebook has Don't Llama Dice. I don't... I that I guess that's supposed to be a pun or a joke. I don't get it. Dalama. Dunalama? Deuteron. No. No, no, I don't get it. This is designed by Reiner Knizia, though. Published by Amigo. And it's very much a push-your-luck dice game. You're rolling dice. You're trying to get rid of the random cards that you're given. One through six in a llama. <laughs> it's the Peruvian number system. Are exactly. you familiar with the yeah. Peruvian number system? It goes one to six llama? One to six llama, yeah. Gotcha. 
makes more sense that way. I don't understand why we didn't incorporate that. The decimal system makes no sense. I agree with you. And it never fails to amuse and to have fun. It is a great push-your-luck game. It does not overstay its welcome. It has moments of triumph and defeat as you watch people engage in unnecessarily risky behaviors and succeed. And moments of justice. (laughs) (laughs) And moments of justice, yes. That is llama dice, or don't llama dice. I, I don't. I don't understand. But I want a llama dice. Understood. We get to play Circadian's Chaos Order. This is a review copy we got from the publisher, designed by S.J. McDonald and Zach Smith. S.J. McDonald has co-designed a number of designs in Garpel games of the uh, Professions of the West Blank games uh, that we have generally found uninspired. Amoebas of the North Stairwell. <laughs> I actually no cancel that. Edit that out because. They might hear it, and we'll see that on the shelves next week. <laughs> anyway, Circadian's Chaos Order is kind of a pseudo-sequel to Circadian's First Light, which we have not played. It has the same art style, which is very distinctive. There is, and... there is a name for it. It's like the very heavy, dark outline on everything. Right. And it is a troops on a map game with heavily asymmetric factions, kind of sort of in the same vein as Root. Although not necessarily to the same degree, I'd say. I thought the factions were more similar than what Root was was going on. Everybody wants to go out and grab dirt. Everyone wants to hold territory. Everyone wants to win fights, albeit in different ways and for different purposes. But at the end of the day, you don't have the same kind of insurgent slash random merchants slash religious zealots slash thug kind of dynamic that you might have in your average game of Root. This is not a criticism, just just the way I perceived it. No, but... Even though they all have the same things, when you're deciding to do something, there is a lot more, not more than root, just there is a lot of choice there. Like, why do I want to fight there? Certainly. What what benefit are they going to get out of it? I just uh, did the same thing because it was the first game that we played. There's quite a lot. There's a huge barrier wall to learning because... Everyone has totally different powers, totally different ways they're going to get fame points. You can win either getting to the top of your fame track, which is different for every faction, or control these six robots. And that being said, I really love the theme of this game. See, before all of this happened, Mark, they were very much at peace, which makes no sense when you look at these factions. <laughs> that, 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 that has to be a lie. But anyway, so apparently this is paradise on Earth. But then there was an earthquake in these six giant robots rose in into the different territories and then distrust was seeded they didn't know what the other factions were going to do with their giant robot so you know let's take them out before they decide to do something (laughs) bad with it sure now it's fight time so you can either like i said go to the end of your fame track or control uh all of the robots that are left because every round one of the robots is going to disappear well Disappear from the map. Yes. <laughs> but the idea is that it's claimed by whatever faction happens to be sitting there. I thoroughly enjoyed Circadians. I enjoyed the action selection mechanism at the top of every round. Everyone gets to set a price for a different action. And if you set the price for it, it's free for you and probably involves other people paying you for it. That interacts with the some of the racial powers as well. Then you go through actions in order and some races are better at some actions than others or have various tweaks to how the, the actions work. Some races indeed have different pricing tokens. That part was neat. And, and you, get, I, you get to upgrade all of these actions? Everything is upgradable. 
in a, tra- a series of tracks that is not at all tracky. It's all very transparently presented on the board. And I very much enjoyed playing with the toys that my faction gave me. And I do get kind of the same vibe from Root in that I would be more than willing to play in the same faction again. And I'm also intrigued by all the factions that were in the game, as well as the factions that were not currently in our game. Yeah, six complete different factions that do play very different. And I, I, having only played once, we're certainly not in a position to comment too strenuously on balance. But when the game ended, we were all within striking distance of victory, despite the fact that all three of us had three very different lengths of victory track and victory condition to advance the victory track. And that, I have to assume, is either fortuitous or uh, an example of good design. Yeah, and we all like uh, different leaders that we can deploy, which all have different powers. You can decide which ones to put out. They can all be... Upgraded, you have all these different abilities that can also be upgraded, be it very difficult to upgrade those abilities, but still, yes, they can be upgraded. The one knock I would have against Circadian's Chaos Order is I felt that it was a little lengthy with three players that took about two and a half hours, which is pretty long. So I certainly, I would be very leery about going into a game with five or six. I would have to believe that those other players were going to play very briskly in order to commit to that length of game, because I could easily see Circadian's Chaos Order going to four, maybe even five hours. I don't think the game would would profit at that length. Yeah, because you're going to increase the number of combats, which are very scythe-like. You spin the dial to what you want, you're, you know, you commit your troops, but just going through all those combats, when you increase the player number to that number there is more consequences there's more stress more build up more urge to win and that's just going to make people want to think more about their actions and it's just going to spiral into pain that said i am looking forward to playing in with three or four absolutely i'd be willing to set aside that amount of time to do that again you mentioned the combat and passing i actually quite like the combat it's it's kind of sort of card driven and yet not you spin the dial not randomly, you you select an area, and the dial will give you two icons, which will correspond to two numbers on a tactics card that you have. I might have a tactics card that says 1-3, or 3-0, or what have you. And much like a lot of other combat systems of recent years, sometimes you go in wanting to win, sometimes you go in trying just to extract some casualties, sometimes you go in wanting to retreat, all these other considerations, and whether or not you can get the dial in your cards to cooperate with your short-term and possibly even medium-term goals is part of the challenge of navigating the battle system. And so that I found I, that I found reasonably interesting. Yeah, and this was a feeling by everyone at the table. They all want to play again, so that's a good sign. So that was Circadian's Chaos Order by S.J. McDonald and Zach Smith, published by Garpill Games. And lastly for me, we got to play another review copy given to us by the publisher, Mosaic, A Story of Civilization, Terraforming the Med. This is designed by Glenn Drover and published by Forbidden Games. So Glenn Drover is responsible for uh, an interesting series of designs about 10 years ago. He designed Age of Empires 3, Age of Discovery, which then republishes Empire's Age of Discovery. One of those unapologetic hagiographies uh, of colonialism, but for what it's worth, it's actually one of my favorite worker placement games despite that. He also did Railways of the World, which was a very clear riff on Martin Wallace's Age of Steam. He also did Conquest of the Empire, which was a very clear riff on Martin Wallace's Struggle of Empires. And recently he's published such games as Raccoon Tycoon and Lizard Wizard. And this is his latest non-pun-based design called Mosaic. So, Walker, why don't you lay out your entirely uh, facile comparison between Mosaic and Terraforming Mars? Sure. You're drawing from a main deck, 
looking for symbols. In Which order... main deck? There are several decks. Oh, let's be real and know that the the I won because I focused on a different deck. But anyway, the go technology on. one is by is about ten times larger than any of the other decks. And is ten by... times? I That's a gross so. exaggeration. I don't think so. It's only it's only about two to three times the the the, the size of the build deck, for example. Uh, probably five times. Anyway, go go on anyway. with your wrong comparisons. So, you're, so everyone's cycling through that, looking everyone. for... Everyone. Everyone, yes. Okay, go on, yeah. It's cycling through that deck, looking for symbols, because you need those symbols to play other cards. You need those symbols to qualify for uh, all sorts of different uh, achievements and goals. Then you you have your own personal player board, which you use to keep track of resources and income modifiers. Which is exactly like Terraforming Mars, just by the way. Oh, you also in, just moment- in that you have income modifiers. Okay, well there we go. And and that, well, no, and that, but that's, that's all that the board just like use. just like major. That's yep. all that the yep. boards use for. Well, I'm tracking your trade goods, which your, are just like what are the trade goods exactly like in Terraforming Mars? Wait, they a, don't have any. Everyone, okay, never mind. Everyone's adding to a shared map where placement might give opponents more points. Oh, a shared there, map. There, Terraforming there, Mars done a, invented that. There's, there's exactly three thresholds that must be meet that must be met to end the game. And the majority of the points will be at the end of the game. Speaking of majority of the points. <laughs> Walker, we, we is, a, Walker a, is salty because he thought he was going to win. I'm not salty. I'm just very no, salty. No, no, no. This is very much a bunny kingdom thing. Sure. And and I'm going to put the comparison with like with a Carnegie and with a Terraforming Mars. Okay. And we had a player that finished the game, finished the last round at 60 points, but ended the game at 190 points. Yes. So that's 130 points in endgame. Yes. That is pretty well untrackable. Right? Oh, I had a very just, strong sense of how she, how well she was doing. No, this is this is some not wasn't her. That was the winner of the game. Sorry, had going in uh, you're talking and, about me then. Going in yes, going yes. into the end of the game, I was in second place. Yeah, I don't know what place you're in, but you had 60 <laughs> points and you ended up with 190 points. Okay, so, but anyway, in Terraforming Mars, you can look at a, you can look over at the other players, and because all of that end game scoring stuff is usually a bunch of tokens on their cards, because they both yes. they both in that way they both play the same. People in their play area are going to have lines and lines of cards with just the bottom showing to show what symbols they have. Yes, but at least in Terraforming Mars, there's a bunch of tokens there, so you have an idea of what they're going to get at the end of the game. In Carnegie, also, there's all sorts of endgame scoring. But at a glance, you can look at the donations and you can see what their maximum can be. And even if you want to go deeper, you can just quickly look at the board and see what they have. I really think it is very hidden in Mosaic. And I don't think that it's that it's fair to say that you're going to be able to know what kind, of, how many points people are going to have. Once you, you got to look over at your area and know you're going to get 100 and was it 130 points? So whether or not this is a serious problem, I will not necessarily address because I think it's very much a matter of taste. But I will say this. One of your uh, problems, I think, is addressed by the other. I I claimed the civilization advancement for having five projects and or wonders out. So in other words, I was grabbing the token that said, I am drowning in endgame scoring points, right? That was a hint and a half that a lot of my that, that I was sitting on a lot of things that were going to give endgame scoring bonuses. Now, would it have been as easy to tally what those would have looked like when compared to other games? No, not even remotely. Comparing it to Bunny Kingdom, I think, is is a false comparison entirely, because no. Bunny Kingdom is a, entirely is. hidden. The, how you get there is, uh, is but the, the, sure. just the, the sure amount of points. Fair enough. That, to a large extent, is a matter of taste. The points that were earned over the course of the game were nonetheless consequential, when compared to the end game points, yeah, but I would were argue. they? When you think about it, I I really don't think I'm I, I don't want to sound like sour grapes, but I just really don't think. Not only was I in control of half of the map, 
two two regions reliably. Two or three regions, not yes. half the map. Well, but in a four-player game, that is fairly large. And then on top of that, with the abilities I had, we're, we're doubling down on those points because of the government I had. So I, I cannot see how someone can maximize those points any more than I did. It is entirely possible that the tyranny government to which you refer is designed for early game scoring and then you should have transitioned to something else. That's exactly what I did. I started out as a monarchy and then I went into an oligarchy because I I noticed it was going to score me more points. As to the transparency issues, I'll grant you that. Again, it's not it's not particularly easy to parse exactly what's going on. But, for example, the, the player, Sidewinder, who was routinely lagging in the majority scoring, I knew she was going to pull ahead by virtue of all the, the, the purchases she was making because I was just paying the minimum of attention to her turns. I didn't bother going over her tableau with a fine-tooth comb. If I'd been inclined to, yes, it would have been very difficult and laborious. But I, I had a good sense of that. Now, setting all that aside. Yes. <laughs> Well, well, I'm, I'm, no, I'm on, the, I'm on your page where extent. you're about to go. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So Mosaic, a story of civilization, is very much about acquiring techs, acquiring build cards, acquiring population cards. It's very much a, a card drafting game. Not really about tableau building necessarily. To a certain extent, you're accumulating symbols, yes. There's a race to get to six in a variety of different symbols. That's pretty lucrative. There are other scoring cards that will give you points for those other icons. But... This interacts and intersects with an area majority element of building cities, deploying military units, having farms and having other other units there. And I did feel like the, that that competition was tense, interesting and engaging and provided a lot more direct player interaction than merely a lot of other card drafting, tableau building games could offer. I agree with all that. I definitely want to go back and give it another whirl and see if any of this pans out again. The setup is no joke. There's a fair amount of setup, yes. Which I thought was odd because there were some cards that said that that referenced unique goods. I'm wondering if there was enough of those cards to warrant how you had to seed the board with them. It's a good question. Right? We had a number of questions about specific card interactions and specific powers because there are tons and tons and tons of special powers and specific effects, as you would imagine from many a Civilization game. And I didn't cover myself in glory because I, uh, on the on the spur of the moment, I had to make a number of quick interpretations. I didn't make the right ones in some cases. For example, there's a recurring issue about to what extent port cities are cities. Most of the time they're cities. Sometimes they're not. I did the reverse interpretation. I argued most of the time they weren't. Sometimes they were. Anyway, uh, so of course there's a there's a big asterisk behind our first play. The level of clarity in some of these things could be improved a bit. There were some cards that left out some text that I think would have been very helpful and salutary. All this having been said, I think a lot of flack that Mosaic, A Story of Civilization, is getting is precisely because it's not trying to be another version of Sid Meier. And as I've been very, very clear on this podcast, if you're going to do a Civ game, I would much rather do something like Antica. I would much rather do something in the vein of Mosaic, something that's kept to antiquity and nonetheless has a better sense, a slightly better sense of grounding than a lot of the other Civ-esque things that Sid Meier has done. It's not trying to be Civ A New Dawn. It's not trying to be Civilization, the board game done by Fantasy Flight in the Sid Meier version. It's not even trying to be Civilization, the Tresham version, although it is closer to that than a lot of the Sid Meier stuff. And again, in terms of personal preference, that's exactly what I want out of a Civilization game. I'm not entirely sure if repeat plays will be as satisfying, but I enjoyed 
mosaic a story of civilization. And like you, I'm eager to go back if for no other reason than I'd like to be able to get the rules consistent and right from the get-go. I am a little worried about the tech deck as well. When someone buys a tech, you flip over, you like replenish it. I'm worried about that, you know, giving a card what exactly they need to the next player. Yes. It is. I am worried. I want to see how that plays out as well. Some of the techs seemed vastly more consequential than others. For example, you could buy a tech that said increase your food production by two, which is fine. I'm not saying it's a worthless tech. And then flips up Siege Engines, which is a tech that allows you to build a military unit that negates the influence bonus of all your opponent's cities. And that seems to be radically different in terms of scope, certainly in terms of the way it affects other players. And so I agree with you that that, that there's that possibility. I mean, it seeds be starter techs at the beginning of the game that don't have prerequisites or at least not very onerous prerequisites. That's helpful. I didn't feel like I was spending that much time symbol hunting, but maybe that was just me. Agreed. So probably more to follow. One hopes that was Mosaic, A Story of Civilization. We will continue to teach the controversy. So those are the games we played last week. It's great that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, but you can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. It's so simple, even a gibbon could do it. ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from over 100 different countries. I've been using ExpressVPN to check out Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance on South Korean Netflix, Friends and the American version of The Office on UK Netflix, Back to Canada for Sound of Metal, and luxuriating in the one and only Tim Riggins with US Netflix and Friday Night Lights. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I love ExpressVPN is because it is so fast and unobtrusive. It also works on all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now, expressvpn.com slash games, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash games. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly, but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, there's a game coming out called Peter Pan. This is coming out by Madagot Games, designed by Mark Pequen. He's the same same designer that did Treasure Island. I never got a chance to play Treasure Island. Did you get to play Treasure Island? No, I saw it played a bunch, though. Yeah, it was. it's sort of like drawing lines on a map and figuring stuff out. But this one's going to be, it says it's going to come much of the same source material, but in Peter Pan motif. Is he trying to find his shadow? Is that? I, maybe. Okay. So there's going to be a reprint of Reiner Knizia's auction game, Tromfabrik. Tromfabrik was translated as Dream Factory in a variety of cases. This is an auction game with a closed economy about making movies, both of which are interesting. The reprint is going to be about horror movies, and it's going to be called Nightmare Productions. And it is going to be published, appropriately enough, by Trick or Treat Productions. Mark, I played a game years ago called Seventh Sea. It was based off of a role-playing game. It was a card game. And they're now going to relaunch it. So there's now going to be a collectible 7th C card game out again. Looking forward to giving it a try. All right, so the designer of Alchemist is putting out another heavily app-driven game called Deal with the Devil. 
where you're going to be selling parts of your soul to the other players. Parts of your soul. Parts. Just little smidgens. The theological implications of this are fascinating. And you just got to make sure you're not selling your soul to the devil player. So there'll be hidden hidden rules. What? <laughs> I think as somebody with an interest in theology, I have to play it for this reason alone. Ooh. The economy posited here is just mind-boggling. This would be my CGE game. and But the only problem is you have to uh, have exactly four players. And, ah. and we know you love that, so. Well, it just makes it difficult to get to the table. So next year, there's going to be a game called Bloodstone coming out by Druid City Games. And why would you want only one Bloodstone, Mark, when you could have multiple Bloodstones? Of course. This is a game coming out next year as well, but this one's by Martin Wallace. Martin Wallace is Brass Burnham and Anno 1800, as well as many, many others. In, from what I've read so far about Bloodstone, it seems very interesting. You're reaching into a bag, you're playing with a bunch of tiles, and you're using these tiles for everything, i.e. either the troops you're going to be putting out, they're the uh, what you're going to use, use to be paying for stuff. You sort of have to make a decision on how you're going to use these tiles. You're going to use it for movement points, i.e. you use the, the tiles that you draw for everything. So it seems like it's going to be very interesting, looking very much forward to trying it out. I've played a number of Martin Wallace conflict games. And with the sole exception of Byzantium, they have all been A, interesting, and B, not quite there. Byzantium is both very interesting and there. So I'm looking forward to trying Bloodstones. I've never regretted trying a Wallace game, that's for sure. Agreed. Once again, a reminder, we're going to be at Chuck's this year, the Shut Up and Sit Down Expo in Vancouver, September 30th to October the 2nd. If, for whatever reason, you want to be in the same room as one of us, Ugh. yeah, that, that doesn't seem like a good way to pass your time, but, I mean, it's an option. I suppose. Shut so, up and sit down expo. So it's like... Independently, the expo is great. <laughs> yes. And true enough. It is sufficiently good that our presence can't ruin all of it. It's true. Only most of it. And they have they have Tigers and Euphrates in the game, game library. So what else could you want? That's... And we'll be playing games there. That's all I'll be doing. I'm sure we'll do a couple of live shows. And we'll be there to play games. If you want to play some games, find at least me or Mark. Now on to the topic of the week, which is, does the industry demand too much? Well, can we just start with, with you just mentioned another app-driven game? Because we've uh, been... Well, I have that later on as well. But yeah, we can start with well, that. Well, no, it's just, it's, just, it's just relevant right now because we've been talking about playing my father's work for weeks. And first it wasn't available on the proper format. Then it wasn't available... Well, first it wasn't available at all. First it wasn't... Oh, sorry, you're right. <laughs> Let's get the narrative <laughs> straight. First, the app wasn't available at all, except in beta version. Then it was only available on, on iOS. App, on, yeah. Then it was on iOS and Amazon Fire. And then it was available on things we could run, but then your computer wasn't charged up enough, and so we couldn't do it then. And we thought, oh, okay, well, we could put it on the shared computer. No, 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 no. There has to be private information, so it has to be on a handheld screen. I remember back in the day, Walker, when we would go uphill both ways to ankle deep in the snow... To the game store, you didn't need any electronics to play a game. Anyway. I remember when yeah, I had two I bits of We've, wood and, just, a, and a nickel. I've, I've been complaining about this for years. I realize time has passed me by. But I have now played a number of app-driven encounter-based games. And I still prefer Tainted Grail and Legacy of Dragonholt for what it's worth. So there we have it. So I know we've already talked about how games demand too much. So, and we talked about how games demand too much time and space on your table to all various degrees and applications, but this is good just to be the whole industry as, right. a, as a whole. So let's start off with the, the carbon footprint that this industry 
stomps on our poor planet. Yeah. I was, I remember in my arrogance bragging to Huey. It's like, yeah, I don't really travel. Well, with the exception of last year, but that was, that was necessitated by family demands. Uh, I don't really, I don't eat much meat at all. That not out of any sort of ethical principle, but I just don't. Mostly we cook Japanese at home and it's, it's not a lot of it's vegetarian kind of by accident. And, uh, he's like, yeah. And uh, how many games do you buy every year? <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. I guess I am destroying the planet. <laughs> and it's really... So I, I, I was re- seeing Chris Farrell, who's a, a critic I very much appreciate, and I agree with most of his observations. And he was talking specifically about uh, Foundations of Rome, right? This is, not a, this, this is just an example. It could just as easy, easily apply to the Great Wall, to be frank. But Foundations of Rome, for, for whatever reason is more prevalent just because of the amount of plastic involved is higher and because the game itself is so light and so slight, I would further argue. I mean, this is where we've come. Like, what could have been a small... It could have been a small box game. could have been a small box game with chits, and this is what we produce now. Well, I'm th- I have a feeling that be- because of what we're going to get into the crowdfunding and, and yes. shipping thing later, but I do feel, and I think I've already mentioned this before, that with this shipping crisis and with these things to come, I really do feel the box size is going to drastically shrink. It might, but it might not. I mean, the the the, the economic exigencies that we're about to get into might shift into retail, but the, still the same thing. Still $200 with a box full of plastic. And again, I'm, I'm a raving hypocrite with this. I have a copy of Massive Darkness 2 <laughs> in Boston that I'm going to be picking up this week. But <laughs> it's just the, the strain of the industry is growing both in scope and in terms of the kinds of things that are producing, regardless of the fact that things have been getting more expensive for a while now. These recent price shocks may be different. But uh, yeah, you're right. The planet's burning and... Uh, no, not to get too preachy about it, but we're definitely part of the problem. No, and I think I've said it from day one. I keep trying to push it. I want people to know we got to get these expansions into like disposable bags, enough with these yeah. boxes, enough with these molds for all the miniatures, enough. Yeah. All right. Without further ado, let's go into crowdfunding. Let's let me go through all these things and then we'll hit each on one. On the topic of fires, Walker, on the topic of things being on fire. So the word community versus company seems to be wanting to fade in and out. It's like, exactly. I am a company. I want profits. No, we are a community. We need to get this thing done. Then we're going to go on to, then we'll talk about some shipping. The fact that we're prepaying for these games two to three years in advance. We've already covered the app. Higher costs due to more add-ons and deluxe versions. Should we be lucky that it got made at all? <laughs> and future problems with IPs. Okay, well, I don't know what you're talking about IPs, but well, we can talk about that later. You want to talk? Okay. So you're, you're absolutely right. There are established paradigms for what it looks like to be a consumer. There are established paradigms for what it looks like to be an investor. There are established paradigms for what it is to be a member of a community. And you are exactly right that game publishers, as a rule, sometimes without intending to, but sometimes I think consciously play fast and loose with these categories and choose whichever model is best for them at the given time. When we're asking for our product, it's like, no, 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 no. You're part of a community. When when we're talking about whether or not our money's going to see any return, it's like, well, you're not an investor. It's really starting to bug me. It's not as though we think we, we deserve anything or, or you know, where, I don't know where, about that. Where, where's our product. 
Uh, okay, sometimes for, for me. Okay. Because I very much feel because I've been I've been bur- I said I should say I've only been burned once and and I'm fine with that I really might, I do really do feel as though that this is a gamble I know a lot sure. of major companies are in this game and they should not fail and they should not be asking for more money but in the end it is that has been their their template from the beginning you're sort of you're not even really paying for a project you're paying for an idea of a project mm-hmm. and hopefully one day you will get something that resembles what the vision is that you were shown at the beginning. <sighs> okay, maybe. But so let's 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 address that first and then we can talk specifically more about the the, the recent spate of publishers coming hat, hat in hand for more cash. The problem is if if it were the case that it was clearly presented as give us an interest-free loan and maybe will come to fruition with this idea, and when that happens, you'll get a copy of it. The problem is, when you're selling old stock, right? When you're managing add-ons like it's a store, when you're bragging about all these other ones that you fulfilled, and how it's a safe bet, and everything's going to go forward, what you're doing is you're trying, again, to move closer and closer to a store. When they're asking for the initial pledge on crowdfunding, they present it as though it's a clear store transaction. The moment the campaign is over, no, 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 you're an investor into something that may or may not work. And when you're asking for transparency that investor would be entitled to, no, but this is a community. Why are you being so hostile? We'll shut this down or we'll stop addressing comments there because we don't like the tone. It's like, well, you can have my tone because you have my money. So it's it's honestly... I would be happy, I think, with it being an investor relationship, a consumer relationship, or a community relationship, if it were consistent. But I find that it almost never is. Well, we've got to remember that Kickstarter, I think the majority of their projects now are in the board game sphere. And it's very much been made a store. Whereas yes. if you sort of venture out into the other sort of trees of Kickstarter, That's true. you'll see that it is more of a sort of hope project and this is the film I would like to make or I'm really trying sure. to write this novel and it's very much you're hoping for a project and you might not get it. For all the weirdness of Pledge of Indifference over the past couple of years turning into kind of a lifestyle <laughs> blog talking about these other projects, I do appreciate seeing what Kickstarter is like outside the board game sphere. And make no mistake, I, I, I'm painting with a bit of a broad brush. There are absolutely board game projects and board game adjacent projects that do indeed very consistently go with one overarching metric. It happens to be the ones where it's like, this is an investment slash you're, you're kind of in a community just because it tends to be the small ones. This isn't any sort of purity appeal, right? Not like what Kickstarter is supposed to be. I'm just appreciative that it's more transparent. I'm talking about the people who's like, yeah, I've got these STLs that you can buy. Pay what you want. Send me five New Zealand dollars. And I'll send you these STLs of these bushes that you can print for miniatures games. I love those projects. They make me happy. That person who's figured out a better dowel so your camera can be mounted better off of some sort of shock arm. And again, they're going to be 3D printing a whole bunch of things out of resin and they want you to want 25 bucks and they'll send you one. That's cool. I like that. Queen Games, Kickstarter, like what? A- yeah, this, is, this is where I dropped the shoe on the other hand. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is crap. Yeah. Okay. Because we are giving these people the money for the game. Yeah. Sometimes two to three years ahead of time. That is a long time. It is. We have given them and they've given us nothing. Yeah. It's. And this is why, so let's talk about the specific 
recent events that I think have really driven this topic to a head, right? Let, let, let's let's call a spade a spade. There are publishers who are now coming hat in hand asking for more money because production costs have gone up and because shipping costs have gone up. Now, to my mind, those are two separate things, right? Because regardless of whether I'm a consumer or an investor, if the production costs go up, that's your problem, right? I mean, I, I don't really, maybe this is overly harsh. And I realize that nobody's getting rich off of this, right? This is a small community. And I, a lot of my complaints about journalistic ethics in board games are largely driven by the fact that it's such a tiny community and it's a young community of, of, of criticism and all those other things. But like the way that it's always presented as though it's my problem, I realize it's hard for everybody, but it's like, well, you know, production costs shut up and that's obviously on you. It's like, uh, wait, what? So a lot of it is tone. That and, I and plus, to. I don't understand how these because you get estimates from these companies and and it's locked in usually. I don't understand this. You uh, have a contract some, and I, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I, I mean, I, I don't like on the business back end. I can completely understand how. Well, because I'm sure a lot of other people are getting treated the same way, right? We were quoted a price. Circumstances changed. We're told we're, we're we need to pony up the money. The board game publishers, I'm sure, are in the exact same position. They go to the factory and they said, "But we were quoted a price." The factory's like, "Ah, price gone up." It's the old saying about crap rolling downhill, right? It's just all from all the supply chains, the costs just keep getting passed down until they hit the consumer. And whether we had assurances or a quote or a contract or whatever, circumstances change. And yes, we're, of course, cognizant of the supply shocks that are involved. We're not blind to this. We're not suggesting that this is lining anyone's pocket, right? I'm not suggesting corruption. Sometimes there may be. I don't know. But I have no basis to believe that. It's more about how we're being treated and a lot of that is about tone and presentation. And a lot of this, I would say, is a consequence of prior decisions made to benefit the board game publishers in the first place, right? The reason why we pay two to three years in advance is so it's an interest-free loan. The consequence of that, the downside, the risk, is if production costs go up, then theoretically you're supposed to be out of pocket. But they're not out of pocket. We are. That's why they charge for shipping two years before shipping happens, because they like the cash now. But then when the shipping rates that they quoted us turn out to be wrong, we're often the ones left paying now anyway. Previously, it was all the suppliers. Like they, sometimes you'd get an update saying, well, it turns out we're going to make $800,000 less than we thought we were. And it's like, oh, well, boohoo, I guess. I feel sorry for you. I, it's, it's nature of the thing. I mean, but now suddenly apparently it's all on us. And the shipping is a is a weird circumstance because of course yes it's gone up like twenty times yeah and because they they've taken our money so far in advance there there's no way for them to know whereas on the on the flip side there's been quite a few projects where while we're going to charge you shipping when shipping happens and shipping will be what shipping is yes and I'm not sure if that's completely fair either because why not. Well, because I think it would be really high and you've sort of been waiting these three years. And by that time, I'm pretty sure a refund would be impossible because now we're right at the shipping time. You're right. And suddenly you're paying just as much for the game in shipping than the game costs. To my mind, it's preferable though. All right. So, I mean, it calls to mind the current situation with Mantic. Mantic famously has gone hat in hand to the, the Darkest Dungeon backers. Uh, saying we want you know somewhere between twenty to fifty bucks to ship the rest of your pledge, uh, if you don't give us that and for production costs, I should note, and if you don't give us that, that money, well, you still own a game, but that game will be sitting in China until. So does this mean they're, they're only going to ship the game to people that paid the money? Yes. Oh, so so if only two people pay the money, then those two people will get product. That's the implication. Okay. It's it's tough to tell, and again, I feel bad for them. 
But again, they should have waited to find out what things cost in terms of shipping, because that that is obviously a variable that you can wait to well, charge. It could have been it could have been in their variants, right? They could have gone like a twenty percent high low, and that, on that, that's what happened. They right? already had a margin. They've already sunk hundreds of thousands of dollars of their own margin into it, and it went one hundred and twenty right above. Yeah, no, no. I'm, look, I'm not saying they're stupid or mean or whatever. I'm just saying that this is the consequence of policies coming home to roost. Uh, well, to, to, to mix metaphors. The policy always was, well, we'll charge you for shipping now because it's convenient for us. True. And right? on, on the flip side, we all know that there's not a lot of money in boarding production. So regardless, they don't have the money. They can't say, oh, it's out yeah. of pocket and so we'll just yeah. ship them at our cost. Well, they don't have that cost to ship yes. them. So, so either you're going to pony up or you're not going to get your game. Absolutely. The, the the part where I get seriously upset, well, seriously upset, the part where I start to object is, is more accurate, is again, the lack of acknowledgement that this is a consequence of the interest-free loans that we've been, that we've been giving them on shipping rates for a long time. The lack of sympathy for people who've already sunk in hundreds of dollars, but by virtue of their inability to give them more or unwillingness to give them more, that they get for now absolutely nothing. A little bit of sympathy, I think, would go a long way, or a little bit of acknowledgement would go a long way. And then there are the publishers who, after years and years of ridiculous delays, now, in addition, who get these additional costs by virtue of these delays have additional costs. And suddenly, magically, nothing is ever their fault at all, period. The particular example of this is Peterson Games. Peterson Games has run a number of Kickstarters two or three years ago, saying that they were China-ready, which to them meant... Well, we were theoretically ready to send them files, but not really. When they said China ready, most people thought, oh, well, you can begin manufacture right after the Kickstarter was over. Oh, no, 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 no. That was just us being stupid. And very recently, there was a Kickstarter video uh, put out by Sandy Peterson in which he acknowledges no fault and uh, just merely assures everyone that they'll get what they're owed. Doesn't say whether or not they'll be asking for more money later. I think the writing's on the wall and clearly they will. Uh, and, uh, again, just saying, you know, circumstances have been entirely out of our hands, uh, even though it's taken us, I think, five years going now to produce the German version of, of Cthulhu Wars, that, uh, oh, it's just, it's the factory's fault, it's the distributor's fault. They either have the worst luck in history, or they've made some bad decisions. Contrast this with Blacklist Games. Blacklist Games have been giving crap for a long time, and they too have come hat in hand unsuccessfully, because they tried to run a GoFundMe to get more money to ship their Fantasy Series 1 miniatures. And GoFundMe said, uh, no, and shut that down because they were trying to offer rewards as part of this. They were saying, okay, give us 20 bucks now and to help pay our quartermaster logistics bill of uh, 350000 bucks, and we'll give you $30 credit towards our next crowdfunding project. Good luck on that one. I don't see many people try to cash that check. And we'll give you some digital assets. But GoFundMe said, no, we don't let anyone get any rewards. So they shut that down. So it's not clear how they're going to try to raise that money. Now, I will give credit for Blacklist Games for one thing. They've acknowledged fault on a lot of stuff. Like, we made this mistake. We made that mistake. We we messed up here. We messed up there. That goes a long way. Now, they haven't been fully transparent about where the money's going. They've, they've always played fast and loose over the course of the past year or so with who's owed money for what and whether this project is, interferes with that project and whether it's all big one slush fund or what have you. Well, I shouldn't say slush fund, but one, one big combined pool of money, which is technically against Kickstarter rules. So 
Tone is good, transparency bad. Honestly, as much as I complain about Mythic Games and Darkest Dungeon, for the most part, they've been both transparent and they've gotten the tone right with a couple of minor misgivings. So that was a perfect note to end on because we're going to go with the problem with future IPs. Now, what if what do you th- what do you think that the Darkest Dungeon guys think of this? They're probably right? not happy because they ponied up a, a bunch of money themselves. This is what I'm talking about. So if you are another video game owner and you've seen these problems are you going to you know allow your game to put on these these future products yeah i i definitely think twice it was already a low margin enterprise so steamforge games for example has been a company that has shambolically fulfilled a number of ip based kickstarters and yet somehow they keep getting major ips the dark souls kickstarter was a minor disaster in terms of fulfillment, but they still managed to get a whole bunch of other video game IPs after that. I don't know how. Sometimes it seems like the industry has as as short a memory as we do. I mean, look, for all these complaints, uh, I've I've drastically cut down my Kickstarter pledging. I'm not ready to swear it off yet. I'm still a sucker. I I, I just pledged for Snapship's tactics. It's going to be a disaster Well, in terms of a game. I, I have no basis for believing that it's going to be any good. But it's a shiny toy walker. Still going to have my shiny toy. So I'm a, as big an idiot as anybody else. Skybound doesn't seem to be making any more games. Riot Games, you know, they did their one big Mechs vs. Minions in that awful Stones game. And then, you know, I'm sure they saw... The profit margin not being there. Oh, it was always a, a labor of love for them. They weren't expect. They couldn't have made any money on Mechs versus Minions. And keep in mind that was a design that they were largely uh, they, they largely took from an existing print and play game, uh, Weapons of Mass Zombie Destruction. The Stones game was more of an in-house thing, and uh, <clears throat> well, that was that was that. I think we're going to see. I hope I should say I shouldn't say I think I have no ability to make predictions about these things. I hope. This is going to be a renewed focus and emphasis on retail because whatever you want to say about the merits of crowdfunding, forcing every game publisher to become a fulfillment company, we now see the disastrous results of that, right? And the the level of transparency and the level of communication that game publishers are prepared to do is clearly insufficient for the crowdfunding model it presented at its best. Because they keep their book secret. They're not usually willing to discuss numbers. Errors always seem to come out, out of the middle of nowhere without any forewarning. And they're not usually terribly transpa- willing to own up to any mistakes they made, although there are some exceptions. Retail, we don't have to worry about it. There can be some announcement. And the product could be two or three years later. That's fine. Doesn't matter, but it shows up on the shelf and somebody else had to worry about getting it there. And plus, like, like we've seen in the last six months, there have been so many Kickstarter games coming to our online retail, retailer yeah. months before we get our pledge. And we don't have to pay these exorbitant shipping fees and we get it before any of the Kickstarter people. Exactly. Do. So so why, why have our money gone for two to three years when we can just wait for it to come, like you said, to retail? Absolutely. And throughout all this, I would just like to, my final observation is the following. GMT has not altered their business model one bit. They've had the P500 system for decades now. You sign up an inclination to pay a certain price. The price, to my mind, has never changed significantly from when you 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 you, you pledge on the P500. They never charge you before it hits production. They charge you just at the moment when it's going to print, and they only charge you shipping just as they're about to put it in a box. And this has not changed at all, and I've never had a bad experience with the GMT P500 system. If it, Maybe if they charged a little more, they could afford some artists. 
Well, that's going to do it for this weekend for Walker's Life. Thank you for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>